0: That is a weighty task, that God would show us his glory through the preaching of his word. It's a task that I would ask that you continue to pray for me about, that the Lord would help me to be faithful to the text of scripture, to be a messenger that simply highlights the truth of the word. We always have the temptation, all of us, to... Uh, kind of infuse scripture with our own nuances and our own biases and our own uh, presuppositions and yet the word of God is sufficient. It stands on its own two feet and it is enough for us. So let's go ahead and begin here with a word of prayer. Lord we thank you for your sufficient word I pray that you might help this to be a time that is profitable, a time where your word is clearly explained and applied. That you would cause even this message today to have a, to, to make us delight in Christ more. Um, we don't fully understand. How glorious you are. Help us to get as close as we can today to seeing that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you were going to write a letter to a Christian friend confronting him for the sin in his life, how would you start that letter? What would you begin? What would you front load uh, in that discussion? Maybe you are a uh, tell-it-like-it-is kind of person, and you just immediately just rip into them, and you just tell them to grow up. Okay. Maybe you are someone who likes the sandwich method. You know what the sandwich method is? You compliment them first, then you uh, hammer them, (laughs) and then you compliment them at the end and kind of soften the blow a little bit. Or maybe you're kind of the passive-aggressive type, right? And you're just a little sarcastic, and there's all these things. Was he really insulting me when he said that kind of thing? Maybe that's kind of your approach in uh, confronting someone. Paul adopts none of these strategies. He begins the letter of 1 Corinthians in a very intentional uh, manner. And remember, we saw last week that the book of 1 Corinthians, in our introductory message, is one of Paul's most applicational letters. Uh, there are 100 imperative verbs in 1 Corinthians. Uh, the book of Romans has, I believe it was 64, and so Romans is much more um, orthodoxy. Uh, 1 Corinthians is much more orthopraxy, which is practical doctrine. Uh, And so how is Paul going to begin this very practical letter? Well, he is going to begin it with no imperative verbs. He's not giving any commands yet. He's not giving any instruction yet. Uh, We might be even tempted to kind of discard the introduction because it's just not applicational for us, and yet we must be careful not to do that. Um, Paul begins 1 Corinthians by pointing the Corinthian Christians to their status in Christ, we might say he points them to their position or to their identity or to their standing because this is going to really set the stage for the rest of the book. At first blush, some might think that this is a rather unwise move on Paul's part. You know, after all, the same people that later in this epistle he will describe as infants in Christ, here in these first couple of verses he describes them as saints. That doesn't seem very wise to do, Paul. What are you thinking? Is there a method to Paul's madness? Is, is there something that he's trying to get at here? Is there any way to reconcile these seemingly two uh, irreconcilable entities, realities? <clears throat> Your infants in Christ. What are you doing? Oh, you're saints. What's going on, Paul? Come on. And I believe that there is a way to reconcile these realities, and I think we're going to see at least a part of this today. Uh, first, let's get a little perspective on our passage in front of us. We are going to be looking at First Corinthians, chapter one, verses one through nine, and simply seeing that God is faithful. This. Uh, title of the sermon is actually taken straight from the passage in front of us, and what we 're going to see here in these first nine verses of first Corinthians chapter one is that in nine in the space of nine verses, Paul refers to Jesus Christ eleven times eleven times in these nine verses he mentions Christ, either directly or with a pronoun or as the Lord or whatever it might be. Whatever this passage is about, whatever we walk away from this passage with, we have to understand that Jesus is central to the whole passage. His person and his work and his gifts, all of it is is central to what's going on here. In fact, just reading this passage out loud, as we are going to do in a moment, if you 're really listening it might sound a little bit awkward because of how many times one right after the other we say the name of Christ it just comes out again and again and again and again it seems almost as if Paul is overusing the name this leads one commentator to say about uh, Paul 's use here in these first nine verses he says Christ is absolutely central Paul lingers lovingly over the name he says. And so in light of this, we're going to see that all of this is related to Christ. It all is related to, of course, the fountainhead, God the Father himself, surrounding his gifts and his call. And so we're going to see the following outline today, God's faithful call in verses 1 through 3, and then God's faithful gifts in verses 4 through 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, 1 through 9, I think I forgot to put it up here in the thing today. So... Uh, but that's okay, because you all have your Bibles with you, and you open your Bible in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, I give thanks to my God always for you, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift." As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God's faithful call. The first two verses of 1 Corinthians is where we discover Paul's greeting to the Corinthian Christians. Most of our modern letters we would write our name or the name of the author of the letter at the end of the letter. And in this day, it was more common to put your name as the author at the beginning of the letter, which is what Paul does here. We read this introductory statement in verse 1 where we see Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Now, the reason that we are entitling this section God's Faithful Call is because Paul uses the word call twice. The first one here is in verse 1, and then the second one in verse 2. The second word, the, the second word in Paul's letter to the Corinthian Christians is the word called. He doesn't waste any time getting right to this word, and so there's something significant right here at the beginning about the fact that these Corinthian Christians... Are called, and specifically in verse one, it's Paul being called. In verse two, it will be the Corinthian Christians. But what Paul does here by using this word right away is he establishes his footing right from the start, and he puts everything in the hands of a faithful God. He says God is the one who initiated this. It's, it's almost like Genesis chapter one, in the beginning, God, and at First Corinthians, uh, you're called. <laughs> Where is the reference point for this word? It's called by by whom? It's called by by God himself. Paul's apostleship, here in verse 1, Paul called to be an apostle. Paul's apostleship is the result of the call of God. Paul did not say, I want to initiate my apostleship and hope that God agrees with the program. Uh It's the other way around. God is the one who initiates. Paul is in this position because God is the catalyst, God is the impetus, God is the initiator, God is the author. And we can string a whole bunch of synonyms in there. God is the one who's in charge here. For Paul to say that he was called by God is to say that he was chosen by God to fulfill this task at this time. And of course, this is very reminiscent of the words of Jesus Christ himself when he is talking to his own disciples in John 15, 16, where Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. They were called by Christ. I mean, just read for a moment later today, Paul's testimony in Acts chapter 9. He's on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians when he has this encounter with Jesus Christ. And Jesus does not come up to Paul and say, Paul, I have the deal of a lifetime for you. What do you say? You want to get on my team here? I mean, it overwhelmingly, God focused in this conversion experience. Overwhelmingly, God is the initiator. Jesus says this in verse 6, But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. I mean, do you see the authoritative weight of that verse? The the, the verse is not, what do you say? The verse is, "Uh, do this, and and do this, and do this, because I'm calling you to do this. This is is what uh, is is the, the meaning of this word called. It is that God is the initiator. Paul is called by God. He is called by God specifically to be an apostle, to state the matter plainly. The decision was God's. Note that he does not say, Paul, called by the will of myself. He says, Paul, called by the will of God. The emphasis here is on the free grace and free decision of God. If it were not for God's call on the apostle, what would Paul be doing? he would still be murdering Christians. He's on his way to murder Christians, and it's only because God intervened that he took a different course. That's Paul's calling, and in just a second here, we're going to get to the call of the believers because this word comes up again in verse 2. But in the meantime, as we finish out verse 1, we see that Paul also includes someone by the name of Sosthenes, Uh, It is not totally clear what role Sosthenes played in the letter. Um, At a minimum, he is kind of agreeing with Paul. Uh, This has Sosthenes' stamp of approval on the letter. Um, Perhaps he was the one who who wrote it out as Paul dictated the letter. Um, Furthermore... We're not entirely sure who he is, although we're pretty sure we know who he is because Sosthenes is mentioned somewhere else in the New Testament, specifically in Acts 18 and in Corinth. Uh, you may remember this kind of uh, interesting uh, side statement here in Acts 18. They all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. Um, Sosthenes, as the one who was uh, the ruler of this particular local synagogue in Corinth, um, he's he's uh, beaten because the context was that Paul was brought forth for a trial here in Corinth. And likely what happened, again, there's not 100% certain here, but I think fairly certain, uh, likely that this ruler of the synagogue, Sosthenes, in the context of Paul being there for this trial, ends up being converted to Christ, and now is part of this this core group of Christians at the church of Corinth. So now, Sosthenes, as a believer in Christ, together with Paul, acknowledging the divine call, write to these Corinthian Christians, uh, and they say this in verse 2, to the church of God, that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, remember he's going to talk to these people later and say something that sounds quite different, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, here's our word again, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. The theme of divine initiative lingers on into verse 2. The theme of divine authorship continues to permeate this introductory uh, intro- introductory verses. You'll observe that he calls this church the church of God, not the church of whoever the, the local pastor happens to be. It's God's church, God owns it indicates ownership of this local uh, body. Uh, it comes as no surprise then that in this very same epistle, we read about God's relationship with his people in terms of possession. So you have here in verse 2, this is God's church. And then later in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 20, he uses this same kind of language of possession you were bought with a price. You are not your own is what he's saying here right at the very beginning. This is God's church, God's initiative. Do you see how the beginning couple of verses here already is very God-centric, theocentric, we might say? God owns these Christians that he has purchased. And furthermore, not only does God own these Christians, not only has he initiated all of this, these purchased Christians owned by God are described as those sanctified. This is an interesting development in the flow of the text. As we noted in uh, the introduction, how can this be compatible with later statements in the book calling out the Corinthians for their sin? I mean, how could he call them sanctified? No doubt, if we were to ask each of you today, there would probably be some Christians in your life that you would not want to call sanctified. There could be a lot of names that you could call them, but you would say sanctified would not be included in that list of terms I would use to describe that particular person. But we have to remember that when Paul is using this term sanctified, he's not commenting on their present practice. He's not not saying you are practically perfect, that you never sin. He's not saying that you are living an exemplary life of sinlessness, of continually pleasing God constantly. That's not what he means when he uses the word sanctified. He's commenting on their status, their identity, or their position. In that sense, we would say that every Christian is sanctified. Every Christian is a saint. Every Christian is positionally righteous. Every Christian has a status of being perfect in Christ. Why is that? It's because the the righteousness that makes you perfect is not your righteousness. It is Christ's righteousness. And so how could we be anything less than sanctified? If Christ's righteousness defines us, we are perfectly sanctified in Christ Jesus. John Bunyan, stumbling upon this truth, says this I saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ Himself. The same yesterday, today, and forever. If your righteousness is Christ, then you are a saint. Then you are sanctified. You are holy if you're in Christ. Because your holiness is not derived from your own steam. It's derived from a perfect Savior, Jesus Christ. Furthermore, he not only calls them sanctified, which is mind-boggling at first until we understand the theology behind it. He refers to them as those who are called to be saints. You're sanctified and, oh, you're also called to be a saint. Which, of course, again, is reminiscent of verse 1 where Paul says he was called, same Greek word, to be an apostle. Calvin notes with this particular verse here, this, our holiness flows from the fountain of divine election. My sanctification is directly connected to the call. You are called, this is the divine fountainhead, to be a saint. You are called to be holy. All of this flows from God himself, And this helps us to understand why Paul spends so much time at the beginning of this book addressing these doctrinal matters. Sometimes we might read this, and maybe you're reading this in your uh, morning devotions, and you're kind of just speed reading through this part, saying, quick, when can I get to the practical stuff so I just know what I'm supposed to do? And we need to just pause for a minute and just soak up this rich, theocentric, God-centered, Christ-centered... Aspect of this book because he's setting the stage to prepare us for all of the commands that are going to come later. Uh, he notes that the church, even though there are sins in it, this church is called by God to be saints, that they are in fact sanctified. He starts off on the right foot. He traces this up all the way back to the head itself, to God. In order to note that God's divine election is the impetus for Christian sanctification. God's divine election is the impetus for Christian sanctification. Let's look at this pattern elsewhere in scripture. We'll look at two other verses briefly. Where we're going to see that God's election or God's gospel call is first. And then obedience and sanctification is second. Colossians 3 and verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, what's that? Gospel. Seek the things that are above. What's that? Obedience. See how the connection here? If this, then this. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. Even as he chose us, what's this? Divine initiative, divine election. Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy. What's this? Obedience. See the connection here? We can't ever... Divorce these two from one another. We can't say that you can pursue holiness in your own strength or on your own steam. And we shouldn't either go to the other side and say, well, because God has chosen us, it doesn't matter what we do. Right? We saw this theme last week in the introduction to 1 Corinthians that these two themes are in this book together. Sinclair Ferguson notes and says that Paul sees election as a motivation for sanctification. Again, he goes all the way to the fountainhead. He doesn't always go to the fountainhead in all of his writings in every single verse. But overall, the trend is the same. Go to the fountainhead and see the power, the steam that the Christian runs on. If if you are going to follow the commands in 1 Corinthians later then you're going to need to fuel up. And this is where he's fueling you up. He's fueling you up by seeing this comes from God. This should encourage us. Why? Because this divine call, the divine call that God gives for us to be in him the divine call for us to be saints the divine call for us to be sanctified is irrevocable you cannot be uncalled how do we know this romans 11:29 for the gifts and calling of god are irrevocable there's no expiration date there's no 30 day trial when you are called by God when when the divine stamp is placed upon you it is permanent which means you always have access to all of the resources you need to be complete in Christ you need to obey and you're struggling with that you already have everything you need It's in Christ. Furthermore, if you are one of the called, everything works together for good. Because what does Romans 8.28 say? Verse we've all memorized. We know that for those who love God, all things together work for good. For those who are what? Called. According to his purpose. If you are called... It works out for good. If you are called and it could work out for bad, that that wouldn't work out. And, and, And if you're called, you can't be uncalled because then you would be called and then it would work out for bad. So you can never be uncalled because you're called and it works out for good. Here's what we need to know. God's call redefines you it changes you into something new. It is the putting off of something old and putting on of something new. And for the context of 1 Corinthians, the call of God is the very first thing Paul addresses when he wants to address sin. Okay, so he's not using the sandwich method. He's not using, you know, uh, the just whatever, the passive-aggressive. He's starting off with the foundational matters of this is what it means to be a christian and this is the steam that you need to run the christian life on god's call is foundational to fighting sin which means very practically unbelievers are not properly equipped to fight sin those who are outside of christ are unable to overcome their own sinfulness in the words of joshua you are not able to serve the lord for he's a holy God. You're not able to. Or in the words of the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah uh, 13, 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. You can't do good. Paul writes in Romans 8, furthermore on this theme, that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Do you see how we kind of need God? He's kind of necessary. And so if we are engaged even as we if we were given an example here, If we were to be engaged in counseling, okay? And since we just finished our series on depression, maybe we're counseling someone going through depression. Apply that to God's call. What does that mean? That means that if that person that we are counseling through that or any other issue, if that person is an unbeliever, what do you front load your counseling ministry with? Evangelism. They need to be in Christ in order to overcome whatever particular situation they're going through. This equips that person to follow through in obedience to Christ and to change for the better. It also joins them to the saints in the universal church, as this passage talks about. They're recipients of God's grace. As verse 3 says, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There is grace available for those who are the called. There is sufficient grace for those people. God's call equips us. That's what we're saying here. That's what's important in these first uh, first three verses. And the next several verses gives us some examples of how he goes about doing that. This is where we see God's faithful gifts. His call comes first. It flows out into the gifts that he gives to us. And so he's going to give us a list of gifts. What is remarkable about this section is that it is also incredibly God-centered. Even even Paul's compliment to the Corinthians themselves is a God-centered compliment. Listen to verse 4. Uh, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. You kind of have to do a double take on this verse. Wait. What is he thanking? What is he thankful for? He says, I'm thankful for you because... It's kind of like a compliment, non-compliment. He's... He's saying, I'm thankful to you because God did this. And it causes the Corinthians perhaps maybe to scratch their heads a little. I don't think he's thankful for me inherently for being me. He's thankful for me because of of something outside of me. His thankfulness, he he can't give thanks to someone for inherently being themselves. He has to give thanks for them in reference to God. Which means that we as believers cannot ultimately give thanks for one another. We ultimately can't love one another without God. There's no such thing as, as having a good relationship with someone else without God. It has to connect to God somehow. Paul is saying, I'm thankful for what God has done in you. In verse 4, he says that he is thankful because of the grace of God that was given to you. I'm thankful that God gave you grace. Again, to quote Calvin, he notes this. Farther, he qualifies his congratulations in such a way as to give them no occasion to be puffed up. He doesn't congratulate them so they can say, Oh, look at what we've accomplished. He, He gives thanks for them like, Oh, God is as he traces up to God all the benefits they possess, that the entire praise may redound to him inasmuch as they are the fruits of his grace. So all the praise goes to God, and Corinthians are fruits of God's grace. It is as though he has said, I congratulate you indeed, but in such a way as to ascribe the praise to God. I congratulate you for what? Another commentator, pinning on this theme, says this, Paul does not give thanks for qualities in the Corinthians, like faith and love, but for what God's grace has in fact done in them. Okay, so this can't be the sandwich method, because Paul never gets around to actually complimenting them themselves. He only kind of compliments God through them, kind of thing. He compliments ultimately and gives ultimate praise and glory to God himself. So what does he specifically compliment God for? What's the list? What is the list of things that he says, I'm thankful to God that he did this in you? Well, let's take a look at these uh, items. In verse 4, he thanks uh, and ge- thanks God for giving them we hear we see the grace, grace of God giving So God gave him grace. It's one thing to be thankful for and he's friends Christian. And any believer has also been a recipient of his grace. So we can always thank God that He's given grace to other believers in Christ. Number two, in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge. So Paul says, I'm thankful. That God has enriched you. He's poured out his blessing on you in speech and in knowledge. And then in verse 6, he compliments this. The testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Verse 7, he compliments God that they are not lacking in any gift. In verse 8, the compliment is this. Jesus will sustain guiltless. And then in verse 9, the compliment is God you into the fellowship of his Son. You know, him. So I want to look at each of these here briefly. The first one, the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. And I'll go backwards here a little bit. You can follow along. Verse 4, the grace of God that was given you In Christ Jesus, God's grace here, note on this particular point, is received, not earned. I'm thankful that God gave his grace to you. You received it. You didn't earn it. And also that it's given in connection with Christ. There's no such thing as grace without Christ. uh, Christ uh, is the one connected here. Then in verse 5, in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Christians are enriched in every way. You already have, as a believer in Christ, this enrichment. It's yours. You don't have to, to, to jump through these hoops so that God will say, I'm going to pour more favor out on you kind of a thing. We have it accessible already. We possess it by the very nature of being in Christ. And so uh, we'll look here at Second uh, Peter 1 and verse 3 that goes along with this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so he's given to us everything that we need. The next one is the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. I think what he's referencing here, uh, let's go back again. The testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. I think that this is indicating that the gospel is confirmed through its effects. Someone is converted to Christ, and yes, they're not perfectly sanctified, practically speaking, until glorification. But there is an effect. There is a difference. There is growth. There is a result that happens. The gospel came to the Corinthians, and it was proven to be real by its effectiveness in their lives. The gospel came to you, and now it's confirmed because these things are happening in you. Then we have, you are not lacking in any gift. The Corinthians had no lack. They may not have access to all the resources. They they, they had all the money in the bank account. They may have just let it sit there, but they had access to all of it. The Corinthians had a number of shortcomings and ways in which they failed to use the divine resources, but they still had the divine resources available to them. Then we have here, Jesus Christ will sustain you guiltless. Uh, this is a reference to eternal security. Right. Jesus will sustain you. I want to contrast this with the Council of Trent. Some of you may be familiar with the Roman Catholic Council of Trent. And I want to read to you uh, one of the statements that came out of that council. And that is this. Uh, No one can know with a certainty of faith, which cannot be subject to error, that he has obtained the grace of God. This is what the Roman Catholic Council of Trent is saying. Nobody can know that you are a recipient of God's grace. Now, of course, contrast that with 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus will sustain you guiltless. And let's go on to read a little bit more, this time coming from the Catholic Cardinal Robert Bellarmine, who defended this statement from the Council of Trent and said this, The principal heresy of the Protestants, this is one Catholic guy saying what our biggest heresy is, The principal heresy of the Protestants is that saints may obtain to a certain assurance of their gracious and pardoned state before God. He says that the worst thing about, the worst heresy of Protestants, of us, is assurance of salvation. Again, contrast that with you were called, the calling of God is irrevocable. If you were called, you cannot be uncalled. Verse 8, Christ will sustain you. You can have an assurance. He will hold me fast. It also stands in stark contrast not only to uh, um, 1 Corinthians 1, and not only to uh, any of other passages, but one of them I'll highlight is 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Did you see the difference here? Paul is saying that you can be sure that God has given you grace. What what an encouraging statement to make to a group of believers that he is about to hit upside the head with a baseball bat. (laughs) He will hold me fast. And let me just encourage us that as we are engaged in counseling and discipling one another, let us spend much time going back to the hope that we have in Christ. And so we can alternate hitting them along the head with a baseball bat (laughs) and then giving them grace. I mean, this is what Paul's doing here. And yes, please don't, we're being gentle with one another, okay? (laughs) Don't take that too literal, okay? But but what we're saying here is Paul is, he's about to be pretty strict with them. But he's also saying, remember Christ. He's going to sustain you. He's going to keep you. As Robert Murray McShane has said, for every one look at self, what do we do? Take 10 looks at Christ. Furthermore, we have not only will Jesus sustain you, but He will do it so that you are guiltless, meaning that nobody can lay any charge against God's a lot. No, no one can lay a charge against you if you're in Christ, because he deals with guilt. And what is that? What is it like when he deals with that guilt? It's once for all. It's permanent. It's sufficient. There's no need to have uh, just this continual atonement. It is a one-time atonement. The next one here is that in verse nine, God called you into the fellowship of His Son. Again, God's call is featured here. It's highlighted. It's not their initiative. It's God's initiative. We know that all of these rich blessings, this whole list of things that Paul gives, all share one thing in common. And what is that? It's that the source is God himself. These are the blessings that we have of being in Christ. And of course, Paul notes also in verse 9 here, the faithfulness of God. God is faithful by whom you were called. Sibbs notes, God is content that our confirmation should lie upon His faithfulness. He is content to hazard His reputation, as it were, and to be counted as unfaithful, else. So that the strengthening grace is of God, He hath bound Himself by His faithfulness to confirm and establish those who are His. In other words, what Sibbs is saying is that God is putting all of the confirmation of our status in Christ God is saying you are secure all because of one thing God is faithful and everything that you have hangs on the thread and it's not really a thread but hangs on the faithfulness of God so where do we go from here? Well, in a passage that has 11 references to Jesus, 8 references to God the Father, 3 references to God's call, and 2 references to grace, the first 9 verses of 1 Corinthians isn't mainly about you. It's about God and his gifts, and his grace, and his faithfulness, and his call, and him. It is about his supremacy. It is about his goodness. It is about his faithfulness. It is about his grace. It is about his choice. Worship him. He is worthy fall down and worship him one of the things that's important here as we look at this particular passage in 1 Corinthians is this don't cut ahead in line don't cut ahead in line to jump to all the application just tell me what i'm supposed to do okay, this is not a secular self-help seminar I mean, Christianity is not a Christian version of a secular self-help motivational seminar. It's not what this is. It goes deeper than that. It goes to change that is lasting. And if we want to understand how we get to those later verses, we have to go through these first verses to understand that it is all of God's grace. The book of 1 Corinthians is this... Uh, exquisite meal laid out in front of us, and God is calling us here to savor every single bite. Paul front loads this epistle with more references to the Lord than we even thought possible. This communicates to us the importance of having a God-centered outlook on life as we work through our obedience and sanctification. Now we are properly equipped to begin this. And we're going to get right into it because in verse 10, Lord willing, next week, he's going to start right in with the application and say, I appeal to you brothers that you all agree and there's no divisions among you. We're going to get to the application. Be united in Christ. Stop the division thing. But we have to go through this first. This helps us to get our uh, footing at the start of such an important letter. At the center of this passage is simply the statement, God is faithful. He is a sure and steady anchor. He's a consistent and dependable source of trust. So what have we been permitted to do here in this message today? We have been permitted to swim upstream. That's what we've been doing. We've been swimming upstream, and we finally got to the source, to the very fountainhead itself, to God himself. And what did we see? What did we learn when we swim all the way upstream? We we, we see all the things of obedience and, and, and personal growth and all these kinds of things. We swim all the way to the fountainhead itself, to God himself, and what did we see that was flowing out of that fountainhead? Sanctifying grace. It's there at the source. God's grace is in the very water that we're drinking. This gives the believer tremendous hope to live a sanctified, practically sanctified life. First, because we're already positionally sanctified. And second, because God himself assists us. He helps us as part of his electing grace to grow in our sanctification. And because of this, we have hope that we will become more and more like Christ. Do not be dismissive towards the rest of the book. Well, we've got got the grace, and so forget about the obedience. Don't be dismissive towards today's part of the book. Uh, Just get me to the practical part. We need both. And so I want to give us just a couple of points of application today as we wrap up here. And first one is this. In order to help unbelievers change, first call them to faith in Christ. Okay, this is very foundational in all of our counseling ministry, our discipleship, that if an unbeliever wants to experience true change... And not just exchanging one crutch for another crutch, it is that they need to have faith in Christ. And of course, we saw that because of the connection between God's call and sanctification here. The second point of application is this, rejoice in all the benefits Christ has made available to you, including the sustaining grace, as we saw highlighted here. There's simply just an element of the application where we're going to rejoice that God has made all these benefits available to me in Christ knowing that I'm properly equipped to go and obey. The next point of application is this. Meditate on the connection between God's electing grace and Christian sanctification. There's a connection here. We explained it today, but perhaps this is a point of further meditation. God has chosen me to be a saint. That means that there's something he's going to do to complete that call to equip me. The next point of application is this. Rejoice that if you are in Christ, you are positionally sanctified. You're holy, as Paul says here. And the last one is this. Rejoice that God's calling is irrevocable. He is enough for us. And so as we start this book of 1 Corinthians, my hope in prayer is that we are equipped now to begin to digest the commands and the application and the practical stuff because we know where the power to get that comes from. It's the source, God himself, who is always faithful. Thank you, God, for today and your sanctifying grace that is shown to us in this passage through your call, through the gospel. We thank you that your calling is irrevocable and that you're faithful to us Please continue to be with us today that we might apply this to our lives as we meditate and rejoice in these truths and then turn them over into uh, ways in which we can fight the sin that resides in our own hearts and practically become more and more like Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.